This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Stillhouse, the official spirit of adventure. A lot of the time, this is what adventure sounds like. When we head outdoors, things happen and stuff breaks. And when you're trying to toast a great day with a drink around the campfire, this can be a bummer. I've had whiskey spill out in my pack before. I think my wife and I broke one of those wine bladders. This is video producer Brian Rogala. He recently filmed a test of camping mugs for Outside Magazine. His crew put mugs in the bottom of loaded packs and slammed them to the ground. Oh, man. <laughs> they created something called the aggressive cheers test. They even dropped mugs off a cliff. Strike. And while they were out there, they put a can of Stillhouse Classic Vodka through the same trials. That's because all of Stillhouse's award-winning spirits come in unbreakable stainless steel cans, so they can go places where glass can't. Which means you'll always be ready to celebrate good times outside, even if your vodka rolls 50 feet down a granite face. It did not break. There were no leaks. And we drank out of that can after the shoot. <laughs> but still, how spirits aren't just unbreakable. They're delicious. Group cheers. Check out all their offerings, including black bourbon, peach tea whiskey, and apple crisp at stillhouse.com. Stillhouse, the official spirit of adventure. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. Earlier this summer, I traveled with my family to Yosemite National Park. I was very fired up about it, but also a bit anxious. For starters, I assumed that there would be insane crowds. I had visions of sitting in our car in traffic jams while our three boys went nuts in the back seat and then hiking trails packed with people. It would be nothing like the Yosemite I remembered from the last time I was here, in junior high. And I lagged so far behind my hiking group that I thought I'd be stuck out overnight, since there was nobody else out there to find me. Fortunately, our trip this summer wasn't bad at all. There was some traffic on the roads, but once we were on foot, it was easy to escape the crowds. And that's when my other fear would creep up on me. Rattlesnakes. This, I blame on Outside Magazine contributing editor Kyle Dickman, who wrote a feature for us three years ago about traveling to Yosemite with his family, when a walk among the wildflowers suddenly turned into a fight for his life. In 2019, Peter Frick Wright produced an episode for us based on that story that struck a nerve with a lot of listeners. Mostly, this is because it gets at the risks we take when we head into wild places and why it's still always worth getting out there. That's a core principle here at Outside, so I'm happy to bring this piece to you again today. Here's Peter. People say that after you become a father, there's a moment that everything changes, or that you realize that it has changed. For Outside contributing editor Kyle Dickman, there's really no mystery about when that moment was. Where does where does this start for you? Uh, starts starts the day my my son was born. I mean, we wouldn't have been in Yosemite if it weren't for Bridger. Kyle Dickman is someone I've known about much longer than I've known him personally. Before joining Outside, he was a hotshot firefighter and then a filmmaker for National Geographic, 
traveling the world making adventure TV. He did big rivers in the Congo and China, explored Southeast Asia and Central America. Eventually, he got serious about writing and worked at a magazine in Portland right before I did, so everyone knew him and loved him. Then he went to outside, but moved on to write a book about wildland firefighting just a few months before I started there. Anyway, as you might have gathered, Kyle is a guy who keeps on the move. And so after they had a baby, he and his wife, Turin, decided to stay on the move. After Bridget was born, we, two weeks later, on just this like sort of absolute whim, uh, swung by this very nice man's house in, in East Albuquerque and wrote him a check for his RV and then um, drove home and uh, two weeks later uh, loaded Bridger, who was at that point six weeks old, right, and our two dogs and, you know, two like totally sleep-deprived, naive parents into our little RV and hit the road for a month. And at some points, it was a dream. They were on the road with their two dogs, introducing their newborn son to the kinds of adventures the Dickman family was known for. You know, we went canyoneering in Canyonlands and surfing on the Oregon coast and, and saw a bunch of friends and family that uh, we wouldn't have seen otherwise. Other times, says Kyle's wife, Turin, it was really, really hard. They were stuck in an RV with two dogs and a baby that turned out to be colicky, staying at undeveloped campsites, just trying to hold it together. We'd gone through... Utah, Idaho, Oregon, um, and we're coming down through California. We'd stopped in the Redwoods and had just a hell of a time there. There's one night where simultaneously the baby had a meltdown and the dog rolled in shit. Kyle had to go, you know, throw him in the river and wash him off. Bridger's wailing. I'm trying to soothe him. Um, and my, you know, my trump card is, is breastfeeding him and he wasn't taking it and so i started crying because (laughs) i don't know what to do (laughs) eventually cal came back and they played rock paper scissors for who took the baby for a walk and who did the dishes and bridger was screaming so bad that turin who won chose dishes so kyle took the baby for a walk he went out he didn't have his phone or a headlamp and just went for a stroll on like a nature trail ended up getting lost like darked out in the forest with a screaming baby on his chest <laughs> like he the finally you know after an epic gets back to the trailer and then he starts weeping cuz he's like oh my god what have i done uh, well, I, well what i would turn and i always say is that we took the hardest thing that we've ever done and made it harder The final destination of their month-long road trip was Yosemite National Park. Kyle's brother lived there, and his parents would be visiting, so it'd be kind of a Dickman family reunion. And I should say, Kyle's not the only adventurous member of his family. They keep right up with him. His brother Garrett lives in Yosemite because he works for the park and can climb El Cap in a day. His mom was an ER nurse, and both parents have done 800 missions on search and rescue teams. The family joke is that they raised their kids in the Church of Seventh-day Recreationalists. And this morning we were like, let's go for a wildflower hike because it's spring and we have a baby and it's a nice day. So we did. So hiked along for a while um, and got to a point where it was decided it was, it was time for Bridger to have a snack. So We stopped to feed the baby at this bridge over this waterfall that we came to learn was called 
toilet bowl falls. Yeah, we just stopped. Everyone pulled out their snacks. And and my brother and his wife are like rattling off an endless list of different wildflowers that we all pretend to remember the names of and then quickly forget. But I mean, you know, really cool, various species. And then after Bridger was done eating, I um, had to change his diaper. So I you know, set down the changing pad in the grass and uh i for some reason i stepped a little bit off the road and sort of peered down into this waterfall and all of a sudden the next thing i i remember doing was looking down and seeing blood dripping down from just the right side of my shin and the left side of my shin and then uh, a diamond pattern of a coiled snake kyle comes jumping up and down i just like like jumped up and uh started screaming fuck 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 like oh my god what happened like i imagined myself like i don't know what really what i was doing but i was definitely basically frolicking i felt like i was like peter pan in a play or something like um and i'm just sort of stunned i'm like (laughs) you have a baby with a bare butt i've got his legs up in the air like sort of frozen (laughs) what happened and i'm assuming that he'd gotten stung by a bee because um, he's allergic to bees. And... and then at some point it was like, I got bit by a snake. I got bit by a rattlesnake. My mom said, you need to stop moving. You're going to spread the venom. And then my dad, um, my dad was right next to us. And um, I looked down and I saw Br- like like Bridger on his back and Turin was changing his diaper. And um, I just sort of sunk into my dad's arm. And then I lost consciousness within... I don't know, a minute or two of the bite. Well, maybe we could start um, with sort of, could you just explain what happens when a snake strikes? Well, if we think about a rattlesnake, a rattlesnake will find a scent trail of something like a rodent, curl up next to it, and then wait patiently, sometimes for days, for a rodent to come by. When it strikes, it delivers a, an injection of venom and then retracts very rapidly. This is Dr. Steve Mackesy, professor of biology at the University of Northern Colorado in the School of Biological Sciences. But while he may teach biology, all his research is into venom, what it is, why it works, and how it allows these relatively small, puny animals to take down prey and defend themselves against much bigger things, entirely through chemicals. What's really happening is the snake has injected this mixture of complex proteins and peptide toxins that are not de novo poisons, but instead are are based on regulatory compounds that are found in the bodies of vertebrates, including ourselves. And it is using these modified regulators in a fashion that's inappropriate and at concentrations often hundreds to hundreds of thousands of times greater than would normally be encountered in the body. What Mackesy's saying is that the human body is a complex system of interacting proteins and cells that operate in harmony to allow your body to function. Whenever you do anything, run, dance, smile, breathe, even sweat, it's because particular proteins have clicked into place and bound together with certain cells to create that response. What snake venom does is flood the body with what are basically inappropriate proteins, 
They look like the kind of proteins that the body uses to regulate its vital systems, but when these guys show up, they give the body bad instructions. And so the net effect is everything goes haywire. It would be like if your body was a city flowing with traffic. When snake venom shows up, it turns every traffic light red, so everything gets clogged up. Or it turns every traffic light green all at once, and everybody crashes. The venom doesn't turn them purple or ruin the traffic lights necessarily. It just changes how they work, knocks the system off balance. And while one protein in the snake venom might affect the traffic lights, maybe another one affects the sewer system or the electrical grid. Except it's actually your blood pressure, body temperature, or the pH of your blood. So when a snake injects all of these modified regulatory compounds, now toxins, into the body, it essentially has the effect of deregulating a whole bunch of different systems more or less simultaneously. Kyle got bit by a northern Pacific rattlesnake, and the first thing he did was faint, because his blood pressure dropped. Your body keeps blood pressure constant by expanding and contracting veins and arteries, making them bigger or smaller, like putting your thumb on the end of a hose. But northern Pacific rattlesnake venom contains a protein that relaxes all those blood vessels. The veins and arteries in his body opened up wide, and Kyle's heart couldn't pump blood against gravity up to his brain, so he went down. If he were a mouse, the snake would have slithered over and eaten him. Instead, his family gathered around, waiting for whatever came next. And when Kyle woke up, one of his main thoughts was that he didn't want his son to watch him die. I am, like, kind of slipping in and out of consciousness, and then um, I'm, I start vomiting a lot, you know, like like the hardest vomiting I've ever done. And uh, I start, um, and I remember, too, that um, I looked up and I saw Turin, and I, I just remember telling her, I was like, get, you know, get, get Bridger out of here, like, go. He said, get Bridger out of here. And so... For a lot of the time, I was actually a little ways, you know, a couple hundred yards down the road in some shade, just hanging out with with Bridger and just just waiting. And I was I was in this weird space where I didn't know, like I wanted to be with Kyle, but he told me he didn't want me there, he, or he didn't want Bridger there, and he wanted me to be with Bridger. And so I was I was really torn. Um, about you know where I should be and what I should be doing. I told her to get out, you know, get him out of here, and and then so my parents laid over me and uh, kept my legs down. They didn't elevate it, spread the venom, and uh, held my hands. And I just sort of rolled from side to side and puked and shit and for a long time. What's the uh... What's the what's the venom doing there, making the body sort of purge itself? Yeah, that's that's actually kind of an unusual sort of reaction, um, and I'm I'm not familiar with any particular toxin that specifically would cause that kind of a reaction. Mackesy says there are a couple different reasons that Kyle could have started vomiting and gotten diarrhea. It could have been because of the drop in blood pressure. Maybe his body responded to that drop by clenching and relaxing the muscles along his digestive tract, squeezing his stomach contents out both ends. Or it could have been caused by some currently unidentified component of the venom. Some known compounds in rattlesnake venom do paralyze skeletal muscles or cause them to clench. 
But medically, the nausea and diarrhea wasn't the worst of it. Because in addition to causing your bodily systems to go haywire, snake venom also contains an enzyme called metalloproteinase that goes in and very specifically disrupts the cellular architecture of your body. And so the way our skin's held together, the way our muscles are held together is via these different proteins. And so as the enzymes in the venom cut those apart, that causes problems locally and your body tries to respond. When the venom gets in there and starts slicing and dicing, the body responds by flooding that area with fluids and clotting agents, trying to stop the damage and rebuild what the venom just took apart. But in this chemical chess match, snake venom is one step ahead because it also contains a protein called disintegrin that specifically targets those clotting agents and destroys them. You, you, you start bleeding spontaneously internally in places that you really shouldn't be bleeding because there was no trauma to those sites. It doesn't just damage your body. It sabotages your body's ability to respond and heal. So uh, a snake bite is really a fairly complex medical emergency when it occurs. Complex, but with a fairly straightforward treatment, at least initially. The sooner you can get anti-venom on board, the less damage the venom can do. There's a saying when it comes to snake bites, time is tissue. They needed to get Kyle out of there. Dispatch, CC. Uh, hi, this is Jared Dickman. I got a rattlesnake bite. Oh, okay. Pretty much the, the moment I lost consciousness, my brother, who works for the park, ran out and called uh, 911. Where are you? I am below Foresta Falls on the Foresta Road. Kyle had been bitten three miles up from El Portal and three miles down from the town of Foresta. The road between those places looks drivable on a map, but it isn't. So when his brother Garrett got hold of the park's dispatch center, they sent a life flight helicopter and dispatched a team of paramedics and a litter team on foot in case they could get there sooner. You know, it's like a three-pronged attack, more or less, to come and, and come to get me. And Garrett's job was to meet these guys and lead them to the bite site, to where I was. So he's running up, and it's like three—it's like a three-mile run up to Foresta, and he's sort of, you know, sprinting up there, uh, up this hill, and he comes to this bridge, and this bridge is over this 500-foot waterfall that's swollen at spring melt, and it had been burned out by these big wildfires a few a couple of years earlier. And he, uh, all that's left are these sort of steel girders, um, and they're wet. Garrett got down and did a scoot along the girders, got to the other side, and kept running. Three miles in 19 minutes, according to rescue logs. But when he found the paramedics, their ambulance was blocked by a downed tree, and they were busy pulling gear from the vehicle so they could hike in on foot. And it turned out Garrett knew one of the rescuers. He knew the guy, and so the guy just looked at him and said, here, you take the drugs. And so he threw, uh, this, the paramedic threw Garrett this bag of drugs, and they start running back down this road toward this bridge. And Yosar, which is like, you know, the, the most elite search and rescue team in the country, gets to this bridge, looks at it, look at each other, and they say, fuck no, we're not crossing that. We have a bridge completely out on this route. Can you divert the litter team? So they turned back towards Foresta, got to the side of the creek, and started bushwhacking towards Kyle. And because Garrett's job was to guide them to Kyle, he and the bag of drugs went with them. The party went up from El Portel. They reported all bridges were intact. The road was impassable and breaking. 
Yeah, you can just hear. You know, I went back and listened to the radio recordings, and you can hear in their voices that, like, that, like they really think it. They really think that this things are not going well for me. Because at the same, simultaneously, my brother's wife is on the phone with dispatch telling them about my status. And what she's telling them is that he's lost consciousness, he's vomiting, he's, you know, he has diarrhea. And and all of these things are like, I guess, bad signs. (laughs) They were bad signs. And the Yosar team knew that a life flight helicopter wasn't going to be able to land nearby. So as they walked, they called in another helicopter team, which would be able to haul Kyle up without landing. Finally, about an hour after the bite, they got to the scene. By the time they got to me, I was I was unresponsive. And my mom was, the way that she described it is she, she says that I was knocking on, uh, knocking on death's door. We'll be right back. Earlier, we talked about Stillhouse, the official spirit of adventure and heard about a recent gear test that producer Brian Regala oversaw for Outside Magazine. In addition to bashing camp mugs, Brian's team also ran some rough experiments with camp chairs. One, two, three. Highlights included asking a very large dude named Tim to sit down in the chairs with authority. And then there was the tailgate test, basically slamming camp chairs in the tailgate of a truck. During this experiment, Brian placed a can of Stillhouse peach tea whiskey on the bed rail of the truck to see how it'd do. And it fell probably, you know, four to five feet onto the ground, and uh, it was totally fine. This is what you get when your spirits come in unbreakable stainless steel cans. They can go places where glass can't. And one pro tip from Brian, when you're packing Stillhouse, keep your eyes out for cold creeks. You sort of dropped the Stillhouse can into the creek. This is like up in the mountains, so the creek is snowmelt. And uh, man, it cooled it down really quickly, and we had some some chilled cocktails after that. It's fantastic. Stillhouse crafts a range of award-winning spirits, from fun-loving flavors like peach tea and spiced cherry whiskeys to a classic vodka and my personal favorite, black bourbon which is mellowed on small-batch roasted coffee beans. Check out all their offerings at stillhouse.com. And remember, keep Tim away from your camp chair. (laughs) Stillhouse, the official spirit of adventure. There are about 8,000 rattlesnake bites every year in the U.S. Usually somewhere between 9 and 15 people die. Worldwide, there are somewhere between 80,000 and 130,000 deaths each year from all types of snakes. But four times as many people lose limbs to snake bites. Because as the venom does its damage, turning veins, arteries, and muscles into basically jello, the structures become so broken that blood stops flowing to the right places. It can cause such severe death locally that you get necrotic lesions forming, the tissue looks blackened because it's had problems with blood supply, with nutrient supply, and also physical damage to the cells that make up the tissue itself. The only way to stop that tissue death is by injecting antivenom. And under normal circumstances, Yosemite is one of the few places where search and rescue teams carry antivenom. But this was early May, and it hadn't been restocked yet from the previous summer. There was nothing the paramedics could do to stop the venom. But they could make Kyle more comfortable. 
um, they get they get an IV rolling on me, some painkillers, some anti-nausea stuff. Um, and this is sometime around one o'clock. And at that point, everybody, you know, I think there was this big sigh of relief. Like, okay, I think he's going to make it. Once the helicopter team arrived, he was 45 minutes from the hospital. With Yosar there, it seemed within reach. But the helicopter wasn't on its way yet. And the longer Kyle went without antivenom, the more the inside of his leg turned to jello. What what is antivenom? How how does it work? Well, antivenom is based on the fact that we have an immune system, ma- we meaning mammals, have an immune system that can adapt to different kinds of invasive or infectious agents. Antivenom dates back to the 1890s when a French scientist named Albert Calmet applied the techniques for making vaccines to venom and snakes. And so, for example, you may get a flu shot, and what that is attempting to do is say, here's what the flu virus looks like. Immune system, kick into gear, make some antibodies, make some memory cells, so that if you see a virulent form of this, you'll counter it. But where a flu shot is showing your body a weakened virus so that it can then make its own antibodies against it and be immune going forward, making antivenom is the process of farming those antibodies so that they can be injected straight into a snakebite victim and go to work. And so we typically take a large mammal like a horse or sheep and we inject small amounts of venom into that animal. Ideally, it's way below any kind of a pathological dose. And so what happens is the animal begins to produce antibodies to those particular proteins. Antibodies themselves are proteins. And as you produce more of them, that will have the effect of countering more and more of any kind of offending molecule, such as a venom protein. When you get antivenom, it's a direct infusion of the specific antibodies needed to counteract the venom. It's like showing up with the exact right key for a lock. That is, as long as you get the right antivenom, developed for the exact species of snake that bit you. How much does rattlesnake venom vary between snakes? Or I guess I would assume, or I think most people would assume that rattlesnake venom is rattlesnake venom. And is that not the case? It's very much not the case. If you look at a rattlesnake from southern Arizona or northern Mexico versus one from, say, Colorado, Maxey says, they'll have a lot of things in common. But because rattlesnakes evolved to produce venom that could incapacitate the specific prey in their territory, and because that prey is constantly evolving countermeasures, the details and effects of that venom can vary drastically. There is one rattlesnake that is found in southern Arizona and down into Mexico that has a pretty simple venom that is only about 20, 25 different components in the venom, but it's the most toxic. There are others, such as the prairie rattlesnake that we have very commonly in Colorado, that have perhaps a hundred or different or, or more different proteins. After an hour in the care of Yosar, Kyle was feeling better. He'd gotten anti-nausea meds and wasn't throwing up anymore. He'd gotten IV fluids and wasn't so dehydrated. At 2.07, about two hours after the bite, search and rescue carried him to the helicopter pickup zone. But according to one of the Yosar guys that Kyle talked to later, quote, that was when things started to unravel. Med 10, Med 15, Ellie Valley, are you up on this channel? 
From the pickup point, Yosar realized, their radios couldn't get a signal out of the canyon. Not only that, but it was a busy search and rescue day. Since Kyle's bite, there had been a series of emergencies in Yosemite. A heart attack, seizure, bears, and then a garage fire started in the town of El Portal. With radio chatter about the fire clogging the airwaves, they couldn't communicate with the helicopter, so they had to wait. But by this point, the paramedics were running out of meds and fluids. All they had with them is what they could carry, and what they could carry was enough to stabilize me once, but not enough to stabilize me twice. And so drugs have a thing called a therapeutic window. You get them, they work for a while, and then you get more, or they don't do anything, and you return to whatever the symptoms are, you know, whatever's making you sick in the first place. As they were waiting for the helicopter, the therapeutic window was closing. And then, as he deteriorated, a bee crawled up Kyle's leg and stung him on the thigh. Remember, Kyle's severely allergic to bee stings. The paramedic wanted to hit me with an EpiPen, and I didn't want to be hit with an EpiPen because I had no, you know, I had no idea what an EpiPen would do to the rattlesnake venom in my ankle. Um, so I was, at that point, I was stable, and so I was like, uh, please don't do it, please don't, you know, I was basically pleading with him not to inject me with it. Um, and so we're now I'm at like two and a half hours, three hours in from the rattlesnake bite, and everything grinds to a halt, and I just sit there in the sun, sweating with a bee sting, arguing with the paramedic about getting the EpiPen. But as they argued, Kyle realized he wasn't having any reaction to the bee. Most likely, just like rattlesnakes, the venom in the bees in Yosemite are different than the bee venom Kyle's allergic to. Bees, like snakes, their venoms are are different based on where they live, the prey that they eat, whatever else. And so my venom allergy is to most likely to yellow jackets because when I was a kid, I got stung by like a million different I, I wandered into a nest and I got hit with a bunch of different yellow jackets and my mom was with me and she like threw me into this river and held me underwater. But when I came up, I was, I was, in, I was into or going into anaphylaxis. Um, but my allergy was to those bees and to that particular like subspecies of bee and not to the species of bee that bit me is what we think happened. So no anaphylaxis, no epinephrine. And then finally the helicopter showed up. You know, I'm just like laying in a puddle of shit and looking straight up at the blue sky and a helicopter comes overhead. Um, things get really windy. Uh, they just strap, they just grab a carabiner, clip, clip it into the, into the um, backboard and up you go. And, <laughs> you know, and, and then I'd like you get a, I got like a sort of a nice scenic flight of, um, of Lower Yosemite. It's a lovely place. Do you remember it? Yeah, oh yeah, I definitely remember it. I also I remember like craning my neck up and looking out and being like, oh, I hope the sun's soon. <laughs> <laughs> Five and a half hours after the bite, Kyle arrived at the hospital and got the first of what would eventually be 18 vials of antivenom. His Yosemite ordeal was over. Unfortunately, his hospital ordeal was just beginning. And most, I, you know, I my impression was that, that like, is the venom plus anti-venom equals all good. Um, that's not actually how that works. Anti-venom can neutralize venom, but sometimes not all of it. And the body still has to repair the damage it did, which takes time. Especially when the venom has such a huge head start. 
okay, so the swelling gets so bad that your body that you you end up making they call them blebs. They're basically giant blisters, and so there is no because because there's nowhere else for the fluid in your leg to in my leg to go. It pops. It makes it just expands into these big ugly blisters that like sort of covered my lower leg. Kyle's leg had also swollen to more than twice its normal size, which was like clamping his nerves in a vice. Even with morphine every two hours, the pain was too severe for him to sleep. In the places that weren't blisters, it felt like my nerves were getting squeezed between a rock and a hard place, right? Like all over the body. Like you just, I don't know, there's you know, there's a better analogy, but it's the skin and, and whatever else. I mean, there's just nowhere else for them to go. The swelling got so bad that doctors worried he was developing something called compartment syndrome, which is when swelling cuts off circulation to your extremities. But the treatment for this problem is only slightly better than the problem itself. If a night nurse hadn't found a pulse in Kyle's foot, proving that it was still getting circulation, surgeons would have cut long, deep incisions into Kyle's leg, flaying it open to relieve the pressure. But that wasn't even their biggest concern. By that point, my there was a bunch of really crazy stuff going on with my blood. That's coagulopathy is what it's called. So, so basically, it goes after the the molecules in your system that allow you to clot, allows your blood to clot. Um, and a normal person has somewhere around one hundred twenty five thousand to two hundred fifty thousand. Um, oh, I think it's a microliter of platelets in an ounce of their blood, something like that. Mine were at nine when, when they brought me in. Um, 9,000? 9,000, yeah. Wow. Uh, which is, and you're at risk of, you're at risk of spontaneous bleeding um, anywhere below 10,000. So um, they were pretty worried about it. So at, at first he thought he was going to get out of there in a couple days or a day or two. He didn't really seem to understand the severity. And I remember mentioning it to his, his parents. They're like, he, he doesn't need to know yet. <laughs> and I think, you know, after a few days and, and finally getting, you know, some of those pretty bad results back from his blood work, he started to understand that it was going to be, it was going to be a while. So what they do is give me a dose of the antivenom and then take my blood levels to see how I was reacting to it. And my blood levels would um, – the worst part, the worst day for me was when – well, was when they had just given me a dose of it. And they'd take my blood levels and Turin sent me a picture of my son. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> anyways, but yeah. And uh, um, – yeah. You just saw him on your phone? Oh, I, yeah, I just saw him on my phone. Uh. Yeah, because I, <laughs> I took these... It was right around the time he'd started smiling, and I took this series of photos of Bridger, um, it, just these huge grins, and texted them to him, and... It was that, that same morning he found out how th- that his platelets had crashed again. And that was like the moment. And, and as soon as I saw that, I was like, okay, great. I'll, I'll go see Bridger soon. And, uh, yeah, my platelets, had, my platelets had just 
plummeted. They were, they were way down low again. And After the first dose of antivenom, Kyle's platelets had increased, bumping up to 80,000 or so. But then they measured them again after Kyle saw the picture, and they had come back down. They were back down at 12, and I think that was the moment that I really realized, it was like, holy shit. Um, I'm a lot sicker than I've ever been before. Kyle's someone who used to travel the world doing dangerous or risky things. He's been held up by soldiers in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He's dodged crocodiles in Papua New Guinea. He'd even stepped on a fair to land snake in Belize. But this was the first time he'd suffered any consequences. There's so much randomness to the world that you just never know when something is gonna something bad's gonna come across and hit you sideways. Um, and I think that's a lot of what made me feel so vulnerable about this, is, is that I'm like a naive and mostly optimistic person, but I've gone through my life doing things, survived things that I probably shouldn't have survived. I've done th- I've kayak class five whitewater in the Congo, and I've done, you know, and like for, for done all these crazy first descents, and like I fought fire for five years, and you know, like I've sort of always like been really drawn to these like adrenaline activities. And the thing that came closest to killing me was going on for a wildflower hike. I mean, how do you make sense of that? What can you learn or do differently next time to keep these kinds of things from happening? It was four days before Kyle could move from a bed to a chair. Another two before he could stand up. Two more before doctors released him out into a world that didn't look quite the same as it had before. In the woods, everything seemed to slither. Around every corner, danger. For the first time, the world was a scary place. And the same thing happens to everybody in their lives in so many different ways. And it's not that they get bit by a rattlesnake or break their leg jumping into some canyon. It's that one day they wake up and their wife has cancer, you know, Um, and 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 or or whatever else that it is. And, And like that, that's for me, that's what this moment was. It's a little depressing, but like I just look at, I look ahead at my life and I see, and I see a, a lot, I see a lot, I know that there's a lot of joy up there, but I, I see more pain than I did before. In a diary Kyle kept while reporting the piece he did for Outside, he wrote, I see this story as a look at risk. The unthinkable will happen to everybody. Risk is a snake in the grass, lurking always there, just out of sight, for that unlucky day you stepped just a little off track. And the other thing is, it's like that's that's not a good reason to not go into the woods, because that's true for every other part of your life, too. Like, you just don't get to live without bad shit happening to people that you love, or yourself. I mean, you know, that it's just, and I think that's, that's kind of, that's like what I've learned from this. Kyle grew up with parents who took him outside and helped him push his limits. He became a competent, risk-tolerant person. Then a random encounter on a wildflower hike and the birth of his son took a lot of that away. I think in general I'm less willing to take risks than I was, but I'm not sure that has to do with the snake bite or if it has to do with Bridger. And I, I think it probably has to do with Bridger because, um, you know, I... I and hard to believe that I'll ever say no to another wildflower hike because I was once bitten by a snake on one. Last year, Kyle in turn had a daughter, Tally. She and Bridger won't ever know the person Kyle was before he got bit. Just like we can't know who our parents were before we came along. 
Kyle won't be able to protect his kids from the kind of bad luck he had on that bridge. Nothing can. All you can do is raise them to be ready for anything, and hopefully meet them in Yosemite when the wildflowers are blooming. This episode was written and produced by Peter Frick Wright, with editing and original music by Robbie Carver. It was based on Kyle Dickman's 2018 feature for Outside Magazine, A Rattle with Death in Yosemite. This episode was brought to you by Stillhouse, the official spirit of adventure. Stillhouse's award-winning spirits come in unbreakable steel cans, so they can go places where glass can't. Check out all their offerings, including black bourbon, peach tea whiskey, and apple crisp at stillhouse.com. The Outside Podcast is made possible by the support of our Outside Plus members. Learn more and join at outsideonline.com slash outside P-L-U-S. Outside Podcast listeners get 25% off an Outside Plus membership with the coupon code OUTSIDEPOD. That's outside pod, all lowercase.